0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors as well as the occasional guest to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
1: Now, today I'm going to be discussing recurrent UTIs. So, over the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be covering the definition of recurrent UTIs, a little pathophysiology, some risk factors for UTI recurrence, and treatment options, including lifestyle changes and the use of antimicrobials. So, UTIs are one of the most common conditions presenting to primary care, something that I probably don't need to tell you, as I expect you're all very aware of how frequently they crop up in acute slots and on-call shifts. UTIs are more common in females, and by the age of 24, a third of all women will have had at least one UTI. And, maybe more concerningly, up to a third of these women will have a recurrence. Multiple recurrences can often follow an initial infection, resulting in a clustering of episodes. 80% of community UTIs are due to E. coli, and these gut uropathogens contaminate the vagina in women and periurethra, and can migrate into the bladder, where they form intracellular bacterial communities.
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor. But if the strength of the bacterial virulence is greater than that of the host defence mechanism, then an infection develops. Common things like intercourse, constipation and incontinence can increase the risk of UTIs, either by disrupting the vaginal secretions, which help protect against infections, or by allowing overgrowth of the invading colonic bacteria. Soaps and wet wipes can cause inflammation of the genital skin and wash away healthy vaginal secretions. Recurrent UTI is generally defined as two episodes of UTI in six months or three episodes within 12 months. Risk factors for recurrence in premenopausal women include sexual intercourse, a history of UTI in childhood, and having a mother with a history of UTI. In postmenopausal women, risk factors for recurrence are a history of UTI prior to menopause, urinary incontinence, atrophic vaginitis. Having a sister seal or an increased postvoid urine volume, as well as urinary catheterisation and reduced functional status in the elderly and institutionalized. In patients who we are suspecting recurrent UTI, it is important to send urine cultures. This helps to confirm the diagnosis of recurrent UTIs and to make sure that we are not inappropriately using antibiotics when urinary symptoms are caused by other conditions such as atrophic vaginitis, interstitial cystitis, or an overactive bladder. And these urine cultures also allow a pattern of bacteria to emerge, which helps guide antibiotic and other therapies. In terms of other primary care investigations for recurrent UTIs, we can arrange an ultrasound of the renal tract to detect stones, cysts, tumours and other abnormalities – and also to measure the post-void bladder residual volume to detect voiding dysfunction. So an ultrasound can be helpful and worth considering, especially in those who have not responded to simple measures. Now, UTIs in the past have always seemed to me quite a simple condition to treat, but they do seem to be becoming more challenging with the increasing rates of antibiotic resistance, something that those with recurrent UTIs are becoming acutely aware of and understandably concerned about. So, in this age of increasing antimicrobial resistance, are there interventions other than antibiotics that we can or should be recommending to patients to try to reduce recurrence of UTIs? Well, absolutely there are. Firstly, we know that sexual intercourse increases the risk of UTI. So, particularly in those patients whose UTIs appear to be related to intercourse, we can advise voiding before and after intercourse, and the avoidance of spermicides. Now, this is because spermicides are toxic to lactobacilli, but not to E. coli. Lactobacilli are the predominant commensal organism in the vagina and help to prevent adherence and migration of uropathogens, such as E. coli, to the bladder. By reducing lactobacilli, it's thought that spermicides interfere with this natural body defence system. There is evidence that a low fluid intake is associated with an increased rate of UTIs and increasing fluid intake in low-volume drinkers can reduce the number of episodes of cystitis and the need for antibiotics. We should therefore be advising patients to drink at least 1.5 litres of fluid per day. Avoiding soaps, shower gels and intimate hygiene products and limiting the washing of the vaginal area to once a day can help to prevent the protective layer of vaginal secretions that help to prevent infections. And avoiding constipation and treating intercourse will also help to reduce the frequency of infections. It was hoped that probiotics may help reduce the incidence of UTIs by augmenting the normal flora of the body, that lactobacilli that we discussed earlier, and increasing the host defence mechanism. Unfortunately, studies have not shown a benefit over placebo and despite their low risk of harm, they are not routinely recommended. We can, however, discuss cranberry products with patients, as it's thought that the polyphenols in cranberry are a natural defence against infection, as they bind to the fimbriae or E. coli and prevent attachment to the urethelium. There is limited evidence for the use of cranberry products, with some reports stating you would need to drink eight glasses of cranberry juice a day to prevent UTIs. But because of the low risk of harm, They are often recommended by urologists, and some women do seem to find them helpful. Because of the amount of cranberry juice that would need to be consumed, cranberry capsules may be more practical. But it is also worth noting that the cranberry products are often high in sugar and therefore not recommended for diabetic patients, and cranberry is also contraindicated with warfarin. Cranberry supplements should not be taken if there is an active UTI as the high acid content can irritate a sensitive bladder. The active ingredient of cranberry is D-mannose. And D-mannose, a monosaccharide that's naturally found in fruits, is increasingly marketed as a pure ingredient in dietary supplements for reducing the risk of UTIs, and it can be purchased over the counter. When excreted in urine, D-mannose potentially inhibits E. coli from attaching to urothelium and causing infection. And research suggests that D-mannose could be a promising remedy as prophylaxis for recurrent UTIs, with actual rate of reductions as high as 45% at six months. It's usually well tolerated, although some patients do experience GI side effects such as diarrhoea. So in those with recurrent E. coli UTIs, we can suggest D-mannose either as monotherapy or in combination with other strategies. But there is less evidence for its use in non-E. coli urinary infections. Another option is methenamine hippurate or HIPREX, which is a cyclic hydrocarbon. It's hydrolyzed in an acid environment to ammonia and formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is bacteriostatic. So HIPREX works essentially as a urinary antiseptic. There was a recent study that was published in the BMJ last year that concluded that methenamine was as effective in preventing recurrent UTI as prophylactic antibiotics over a 12-month period. So this is something that could be discussed as part of our shared decision-making when considering prophylaxis against recurrent UTI. Interestingly, in that study, the number of adverse events were low and similar between the antibiotic and HIPREX groups. However, the two serious adverse reactions were both in the antibiotic group and all four hospital admissions related to UTI were in the HIPREX group. We are also currently lacking long term safety data for HIPREX. Topical estrogens may have an important role in the management of recurrent UTIs in postmenopausal women, particularly if behavioural and personal hygiene measures have not been effective. Low estrogen levels have been linked to low numbers of lactobacilli. A rise in vaginal pH, and increasing colonisation with uropathogens. And randomised controlled trials comparing topical estrogen with placebo showed a significant reduction in UTI episodes per patient per year, from 5.9 in the placebo group down to 0.5 in the topical estrogen group. Because of the unknown long term effects of topical estrogens on the endometrium, the lowest effective dose should be used. They should be reviewed at least annually to assess the need for continued treatment and women should be advised to report any vaginal bleeding. Oral estrogens should not be offered specifically to reduce the risk of recurrent UTI. So given all these non-antibiotic options, is there still a role for antibiotics in the management of recurrent UTIs? Well, yes, there is, but their use should really be reserved for when the treatments that I've already discussed have not been effective, have not been tolerated, or have felt to be inappropriate. And they can also be considered for recurrent non-E. coli UTIs that may be less susceptible to some of these other treatment options. There are a few ways that antibiotics can be used. Firstly, it might be appropriate to consider allowing patients to have a short course of narrow-spectrum antibiotics at home, so that they can self-start at the first sign of an infection to try to reduce the severity of an attack. These patients should also be given a urine pot to have at home, so that they can collect a urine sample before starting the antibiotics, as again this can help to identify the causative organisms and guide treatment. Secondly, those whose attacks have a clear trigger, such as intercourse, may benefit from post-coital antibiotics. And this is usually a single dose of 200 milligrams trimethoprim or 100 milligrams of nitrofurantoin taken within an hour of intercourse to try to prevent the onset of symptoms and infection. Now, in terms of longer term antibiotic use, this is really only recommended for those who continue to have infections despite lifestyle and non-antibiotic options and in whom single dose antibiotic prophylaxis has not been effective or is not appropriate, maybe because that patient doesn't have identifiable triggers. And I think it's important to highlight that antibiotic prophylaxis should not be considered a lifelong treatment. And the usual recommended duration of use is three to six months, with a maximum duration of 12 months. The antibiotics used should preferably be narrow spectrum, with trimethoprim and nitrofurantoin commonly used. But do remember that even at low doses nitrofurantoin can cause pulmonary toxicity. The choice of antibiotics should be guided by the sensitivities on urine culture, side effects and the presence of any resistant bacteria. So what do we do if a patient has a breakthrough UTI while taking continuous prophylactic agents? Well, firstly, if they're taking Hiprex, the breakthrough infection should be treated according to culture and sensitivity results if available but the hip rec should be continued alongside the antibiotic course for the breakthrough infection if there has generally been a good response. If the patient has multiple breakthrough UTIs, so two or more in six months, the hip rec should be stopped or changed to an alternative prophylactic agent such as an antibiotic. If they haven't already been investigated, then this would be a good time to consider a referral to urology. If the patient is taking a continuous antibiotic and has a breakthrough infection, the breakthrough infection should again be treated according to culture and sensitivity results if they're available, with the original prophylaxis being held and then restarted once the infection has resolved if the culture confirms susceptibility to that prophylactic agent. If the culture shows resistance to that prophylactic agent or multiple breakthrough UTIs occur, so again two or more in six months, then that prophylaxis has proved ineffective and should be stopped or changed to an alternative prophylactic agent, so either an alternative antibiotic or methenamine if it hasn't already been tried. And again, consider a referral to urology at this point if you haven't already. So as I said, the usual duration of treatment with antibiotic prophylaxis is three to six months. And it's important that patients understand that there is no good evidence for prolonging their use beyond this time. I think that if patients understand this at the outset, then there may be less resistance to stopping them. As understandably, some patients can be concerned that their UTIs will return on stopping and would rather therefore continue indefinitely. However, it's been shown that a prolonged period of prophylactic agent may allow bladder epithelial healing, which reduces the risk of future UTIs when antibiotics are then stopped. And the proportion of patients who don't return to suffering with recurrent UTIs after stopping continuous prophylaxis may be around 50%. This means a significant number of patients are able to stop continuous prophylaxis without a return of symptoms and therefore avoiding the risks of resistance emerging and side effects to the medication. We can consider offering standby antibiotics when stopping continuous prophylaxis, and this gives some patients sufficient reassurance to trial off their prophylaxis treatment. Longer term prophylaxis with either an antibiotic or methenamine may be helpful in those patients whose UTIs are suppressed when on prophylaxis and recur when prophylaxis is discontinued, but it's probably worth discussing this with urology. So these options really are our ceiling of care in primary care. And in terms of involving our urological colleagues in the management of recurrent UTI, the referral criteria would include any man with more than one UTI, people with recurrent upper urinary tract infections, People with recurrent lower urinary tract infections when the cause is unknown. Those over the age of 50 with a new presentation of recurrent UTIs, as this cohort need a cystoscopy to determine if their symptoms are due to an intravesical lesion, such as a stone or tumour. And as we've already said, those of any age whose recurrent UTIs are refractory to lifestyle changes, topical oestrogen in our older postmenopausal women, other non-antibiotic strategies or antibiotic prophylaxis. We should also refer anyone with recurrent UTIs if they have a suspected structural abnormality of the urinary tract, for example those with a history of UTIs in childhood, known neurogenic bladder dysfunction and known renal stone disease. When patients are referred, they can expect a thorough history and examination as well as a review of their urine cultures And it's also likely that they will go on to have some imaging. This is commonly an ultrasound of their urinary tract with an assessment of bladder emptying, if this hasn't already been done in primary care. And sometimes an x-ray or CT may also be deemed appropriate. Many patients will go on to have a cystoscopy, especially as I've already suggested in those over the age of 50 with a new diagnosis of recurrent UTIs. But interestingly, there has been evidence showing that in younger patients with normal imaging, a cystoscopy adds little in terms of diagnostic pickup, so it might be omitted in this cohort. In terms of other treatments that might be considered in primary care, one option would be intravesical glycosaminoglycans. The theory behind these is that the urethelium is lined by a mucous layer of glycosaminoglycans and proteoglycans. And these are felt to be an important host defence mechanism. By boosting this layer with initially weekly and then monthly intravesical glycosaminoglycans delivered by catheter for around five months, there has been shown to be an increase in the number of women who are UTI free at 12 months. But at the time of recording, there have only been a few small studies in this area. Future treatments that are under development include immunostimulants or vaccines against E. coli and other uropathogens and appear to be promising emerging treatments. There are several oral and IM products under development, but they are not at present available for clinical use in the UK. So in conclusion, a multimodal approach to UTI prevention is probably the most effective strategy. In these times of increasing antimicrobial resistance, it is important to balance the benefits and risks of antibiotic use for the prevention of UTIs, and we should be aware of and discuss non-antibiotic strategies with our patients.
0: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.